And I was like, your jam is so far away. <laughs> you didn't even need to know who it was. You're just like, oh, someone knocked me down. It's probably going to be James. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So this is the first episode we're recording after Frisbeer, and I think we should talk about some of the highlights we had. Yeah, it was a so, super fun tournament. It was the second one since the pandemic. It was a little bit of a smaller turnout than we've had at other Frisbeer. So I think there was about 60 active competitors, which is a little disappointing. And we'll probably have an episode at some point about whether we should be concerned that there's lower numbers at some of our tournaments. I think a lot of it is still like a post-pandemic dip and some of the players from our generation are starting to retire. But what do you think some of the highlights were from the tournament? So the first one's very personal, but the judging system. This is the first time I ran the new software that's been written from the ground up and it performed like flawlessly. And I was very happy with that. Yeah, the judging system was amazing. So if there's people out there that still have doubts about the technology side of the judging system, I highly recommend you wait to try the new system. Like for me, I think the old system technology-wise was good enough and it had some problems and sometimes it was hard if you weren't around to keep it going, but I kind of assumed it would get better or I just got used to it. But now that I've used version three, it puts into perspective how far away version two was to being a complete product because I judged every round I didn't compete in, I think. And mm, yep. There was never a problem for me. There was a never a problem for anyone I was judging with. The f- just even things like the response time of when you put in a number just instantly appeared on the screen. It was so much more intuitive. And I think once people see this system, I think we'll get some more of the holdouts who might be skeptical of going to an electronic format. And again, I'm just talking about the implementation of it electronically obviously there's always going to be people who have things they want and don't like about the substance of the system but the implementation is really incredible and i'm super impressed of your work with your work and i think we're all super grateful for all the time you put into it cool all right what else is on your list standout players yeah so standout players i'm sure i'm gonna miss some people or offend some people or someone's gonna be like, how could you not think of this person? But one of the first people that comes to mind for me is Zofia or Zasha, who's a Polish player living in Berlin. She's who I played with in Worlds this year. I'm almost mad at her because she's gotten so much better in the six months since we played Worlds. It's making us look bad. Like we should have won Worlds based on the way she's playing (laughs) now. She's easily twice as good as she was when we were playing did she, she won Turbo Shred. Turbo women's. Shred. I mean, that's yeah. unbelievable. And the thing that I told her was that, you know, she's still only been playing two or three years, so there's a lot more to build and develop. But everything she does do is pretty much flawless. Like, I wouldn't change anything about how she does her Flamingitis. I wouldn't change anything about how she grapevines. Everything she's doing looks like how a 10-year pro would do it. And a lot of times that's the hardest thing for newer players to develop. I mean, for me, it probably took eight years before I more or less liked the way I did the things that I did. (laughs) 
like so many of the years are just you're hitting the move however you can and you don't have the brain power or skill to think about how it looks and how it functions but for her it's just already right there and she's so consecutive and she's so fluid and i think all that's left is really to just keep building her vocabulary and i think that's honestly the easiest thing to do which is kind of one of my themes you know it's moves are easy it's everything else that's hard and she's got everything else so super impressed what about you yeah i agree with all of that i was happy to see the newer players or the players I saw for the first time in Milan also showing up at Frisbeer. So there's still interest like Ricardo from Italy and the <laughs> yeah. new Israeli guys. It's like super happy to see them still coming out to big tournaments. Well, you're jogging my memory. So one, we might've said this before about another tournament, maybe Milan, but I think for sure the majority, maybe even the vast majority of players started well after you and me which is kind of weird. Like we were kind of some of the <laughs> oldest, most experienced players, which wasn't always the case. So that's great. So even though the numbers are small, 60 or so players, it's really exciting that a lot of those players are newer players and players that have a lot of skills. But yeah, the Israeli jam scene, scene really showed up. And not only do they compete well, especially Daniel Pinhas, who is super impressive, I had one of my favorite jams with all the Israeli players and it was a wide variety of skills represented. Some really, really experienced skilled players, but also some newer players. And everyone just knew how to jam and knew what they were supposed to do. And that's especially impressive when you're kind of an isolated jam scene where the players don't get to travel as much and don't get to mm -hmm. kind of mingle with other jam scenes to figure all that out. Although it matches the, my second generation theory where... These are the second generation from those crews. So they've had mentors the whole time. Like they've had Lusty and them teaching them how to jam as they like learn how to delay. Well, we talked about this a lot at Frisbeer and it probably sounds like some somewhat arrogant American exceptionalism or something. But I think for a long time when we would go to Europe, we would be a little bit disappointed with the I don't, I don't, I don't really know if these are the right words for it, but like the style of jamming or the decision making of the jammers. So there was lots of really skilled players, but the way they jammed, you know, at best was just foreign to us, or at worst had some problems, like not really knowing when to pass and when to catch and how to move the disc along. But I think that's improved a ton. Like I really felt like I was in a New York jam with Dougie and Joey half the time I was jamming with people, I think people have really figured out the mob op and how to do it in a way that keeps it moving and makes it fun for everybody. So I'm really happy about that. Would you agree? Yeah, I also noticed that. And we talked about it after Frisbeer, like at one of the dinners, but it is nice to see. It's also interesting that they play kind of similar to how we play in Seattle, but how did that happen? Like, is there just one answer to the best way to mob off or did someone, was there influence? That's why I'm trying to be careful because you could easily just say that there's different dialects of jamming and we had one and we went to Europe, they were speaking a different dialect and we didn't understand each other very well. So it's not that the way we were doing it was better and the way they were doing it is worse. So I get that. Like that's definitely a theory for 
why we've had that problem and maybe what's changed is a bad thing, which is that everyone's speaking the same language now and we've lost <laughs> some diversity or something. I think that's a viable theory. I don't know what the right answer is, but I do think there are things that have improved that are kind of objectively on any metric better. So I think people's instinct and ability to catch frequently is a lot better. It used to be kind of the running joke, even among Berliners, for instance, that you just mob opt until someone dropped it. And <laughs> now it seems like people are catching it a lot more. Jay Coleman early often. So I think that's awesome. And there's also just something really satisfying about knowing that if I said it to this person and I move over here, there everyone knows where the disc is supposed to go. And like we're mm -hmm. anticipating each other's movements and decisions in a way that's kind of incredible. It's like, I've never played with you before. We don't speak the same language. We barely know each other. And somehow we both know what we're supposed to do when to make this co-op work in a cool way. Yeah. Would you say the quality of throwing has improved? Just like even people who are newer that are just huh. have a naturally better throw. That's a great question. It's, it's hard for me to judge because I do think Europe has always excelled at throwing, at least relative to the other skills. And I'm saying Europe here because I'm thinking about when we go to Europe, the people we play with, but it obviously includes just the people that are there, which as we just mentioned, can be people from Israel or people from Colombia or wherever. But I just mean, I'm thinking like when I go to Europe, what happens? But I think if you think about the top throwers who've ever played, half of them or more are Europeans. And that's sort of surprising because Europe was really late to the game. And even at a time where American players were still far more skilled than European players, there was a disproportionate number of Europeans who had the best throws. So I'm a little bit skewed here in saying that they've gotten better at throwing because I think they were always pretty good at throwing to me. But I might be getting influenced by outliers. So like nice. the Benos and the Dirty Harry and Sir Harold Hineses of the world kind of skew my understanding of it. But... <laughs> I will say I tend to notice when I'm not getting good throws or at least throws with not very much spin. And I never really felt that way. I just felt like I was always getting all the spin that I needed. So mm -hmm. that's pretty cool. I would say it's more accurate. The The throwing is more accurate on average. Yeah, I definitely wasn't chasing down a lot of discs, which is certainly nice. And it's also nice when you're in that Frisbeer gym and there's 10 jams going on. If you don't have accurate throws, you're going to run into someone else's jam, which I'm seeing you smile and I'm going to tell <laughs> a quick, quick story from Frisbee. So we always joke that, you know, I've been known to knock someone down every now and then on the freestyle field. And at one point at Frisbee, someone like said it to me way off into another jam. And what a responsible person would have done is let it go and just let it hit the ground and go pick it up. But I got it in my head that I was going to run that thing down. And so I'm, watching the disc fly and I'm zigging and zagging through a couple jams. And then right when I go to catch it, I slam into somebody and they just fall to the ground. I fall to the ground and I'm like, oh no, who did I hit? And I turn around and it's you. <laughs> You're lying down <laughs> on the gym floor. And I think I said to you, it's like, thank God it's just you. And got up and went back to my jam. I was like, well, if I'm going to pause someone over, at least it's Ryan. So that, <laughs> I that did looking happen. up. And I was like, you, your jam you, is so far away. <laughs> you like, didn't even need to know who it was. You're just like, oh, someone knocked me down. It's probably going to be James. <laughs> yeah. Okay, before we 
I feel like there's a couple more standout players, but there are any other players that came to your mind just watching them compete? I know you mentioned Ricardo, who I was really impressed with in Milan and was super excited to see him shred once again. And I think he's one of those players that's going to take six months, but people are going to realize he's a top, I don't know what the number is, but top 10% player in the world right now. I was in a bunch of jams with him where it was all the best players and he was holding his own and no one would have thought he doesn't belong in that jam. So Mm. he's incredible. And he also kind of fits that category of everything he does do is perfect. So like you would never know that he's a beginner because the things he's doing, he does them with a 10-year vet's form. But anyone else come to mind for you? The younger Israelis. So like Elad, Roy, and Ozzy. So yeah. this fits into your theory of having someone to grow with. Like you and Daniel kind of grew together. Like those, yeah. especially like Elad and Roy are kind of growing together, right? As a pair. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I had a great jam with them. I talk a lot with Elad on Facebook and we send stuff back and forth and he's really fired up and that makes me fired up. Two other people that come to mind I mentioned before, but Daniel Pinhas is incredible. He crushed in his routine. He and Yuval, not surprisingly, had a gorgeous routine, which I think I talked about when we had Andre on. He crushed in Turbo Shred, and he just plays so calmly. And I think he's one of those players who is almost hurt by the fact that he makes hard stuff look too easy. So he's, I'm just <laughs> like, oh, are people seeing this? He's hitting the craziest moves, but he does them with such poise and with such a relaxed state that you don't even realize it. And then the last player I want to mention is Kuba Opaluk, who I had some great jams with, and he's got a really good energy. And it's no surprise that, once again, one of the standout players from a big tournament is a Polish player. It just seems like if it's not Kubana or Timek or Kuba, there's always Zofia, like all the best players right now who are really just skyrocketing from seemingly nowhere, all coming from Poland. And that's a hot That's incredible. Yeah, Yeah, that's the place to be right now, it seems. Yeah. Also, do you think it's surprising how many women were at the tournament for how like few competitors there were overall? Oh, yeah. It's super incredible. I think there was almost as many mixed teams as there were like any other teams. (laughs) And that's also where we seem to have the bulk of new players which is incredible. And then I just think the skill level that we saw, like Benedict and Zofia just going at it in Turbo Shred was crazy to watch. Just such high skill and so much power and such clean moves. Yeah, it's it's exciting. It's so weird. Like it's kind of odd. If it's the first time in my Frisbee life that there's a new generation after me and it's super cool. And super weird. (laughs) I'm still adjusting (laughs) to it. It's like, how are all these people so good all of a sudden? But I guess that's just part of of getting old and seeing the next generation come in. And thank goodness there is a next generation. Yep. It's very healthy. Okay. Was there anything else from Frisbeer? I think that's it. I think the routines went up. I saw that today. Thanks to Ed Oturi for doing the work of not only putting up the routines, but also putting up some cool graphics and whatnot. So pretty cool that those are already up. Check them out. And looking forward to next year. I think it's one of my favorite tournaments. I think it's one of, if not the most important tournament of the last 
10 years besides Worlds. It's just there every year. It's usually one of, if not the biggest tournament. Like this year, I think Frisbeer is going to be a lot bigger than Worlds. And kudos to Jakob Kostel, Dexter, and the whole crew there for putting it together. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So now on to our main topic. I realized I should have teased this at the beginning of the episode, but I'll have to make a really clickbaity title when I post it to Facebook. But there is a big announcement. And James, why don't you go for it? Well, I'm trying to decide if it's a big announcement or not. But I guess to get to the end of it, I think Worlds is my last competitive tournament, at least as far as I can look into the future. I don't, I'm not going to assume there won't be some kind of return like an Arthur Coddington or a Randy Sylvie. Like maybe it's just an extended break, but I don't know. I think this is probably my last Worlds and maybe my last competitive tournament. And I was really worried I would never get to the point where I was ready to do that. I was always kind of thinking like, what am I going to do when I have kids or I have a job that takes up too much time and I can't go to Worlds. I'm going to be so bummed. And now I'm kind of like, I can go to these tournaments, but it's not really what I'm motivated to do anymore. But just so people know, I'm going to keep playing and I'm going to keep going to, <laughs> as, I'm going to keep going to events to jam, but the competing part, I'm, I don't know. I lost the eye of the tiger or whatever it was that drove me to keep doing it. So the, the biggest thing is your partner list ends this year. I know you had like a little book that had all your partners for like the next seven years. Now it's empty. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. Like I've thought like did COVID lengthen or shorten my competitive career? And I think it lengthened it in terms of raw time because, you know, I had a partner book out for many, many years, but many, many years became many, many more years because one, the pandemic was a two year delay and two, I kept it, I kept having to defend titles. So that would push partners back a year. So a list that was originally supposed to end, let's say in 2018, turned out to be a list that didn't end until 2023. Now, technically the list goes one more year, but I think, unfortunately, I'm not going to finish out those commitments. But, you know, at some point, like I was kind of thinking about it this way too. Every great freestyler could play for 40 years and <laughs> compete successfully. And it's almost impossible to play at a high level and put in all the work of competing for that long. There are people who have done it, like Paul Kenny and Dave Schiller, although even they can be on and off at times. But it's super hard to do that. Like I am more impressed than ever with like the Tom Lightners of the world who can put in that work year after year for such a long period of time. But most people at some point, even though they could keep competing and could keep winning, reach, reach this point where they don't, there's not like a lot left in terms of value out of it. And that doesn't mean you're not still fired up about freestyle, but I think a lot of the parts of competing are my least favorite parts. So if I can have more of the freestyle parts I like and less of the parts I don't like, then I'm in a better place. Okay. So what I wanted to do is have a retrospective of your career and like talk about some of the things and like do a little bit more analysis. Cause I think it's common to tell a bunch of stories, but that's not what we do here. So 
All right. This Actually, is, the first thing this is, is your this idea for the record. So I, and I have no idea what you're <laughs> asked. So hopefully this doesn't just devolve into me talking about all the random tournaments I've played in, but let's find out. Okay. The first thing I want to ask is what do you think was the biggest high and the biggest low of your freestyle career? I think the biggest high was the 2012 to 2014 range. And I had an error done be 2012. And I think I mentioned this on the podcast with Ilka, but there's something about becoming a great player that's so satisfying. Mm. And it's a lot better than being a new player or being an established player. And that's the time when everyone's the most excited about you. Like that's when you win the spirit of the jam award a lot. <laughs> like people are just <laughs> really excited that you're there. Like everyone just roots for you in this way. You're the underdog, which everyone loves a good underdog story. You're making rapid improvements all the time. So you always have new stuff to show. A lot of people haven't seen you play before. And so you get to see that excitement on someone's face when they realize how good you are and they've never seen you before or heard of you. And I love that. Like I think about 2012 Paganello was one of the big kind of like breakout tournaments for me where like there was a crowd there, which doesn't happen very much. And it just felt like I was on top of the world. I got, you know, like eighth, fifth and fourth <laughs> or something. And it like did not matter at all. It was such a blast. And then lows, I don't know. It depends on the per- like perspective. So I think competitively after like 2018, it was a lot lower because I'd kind of done the things that I wanted to do and I wasn't really sure what I was competing for anymore. And I think also like as your adult life starts to kick in and it becomes harder and harder to fit freestyle into your schedule, it was frustrating that competition was taking up a big chunk of the free time I had to freestyle Mm. instead of jamming. So for instance, if I'm going to go to Worlds and Frisbeer, which is usually my schedule, that's two weeks, essentially. So if you think of, you know, the U.S. work schedule, my two weeks vacation (laughs) are to go to Frisbeer and Worlds, plus whatever time I can get to practice with three different teams. And I would have much rather taken those weeks and done an extra beach weekend or gone to a summer Berlin hat tournament and just had like a great jam or something like that. So I think that was a little bit of a low point and everything I said about the high point was kind of the reverse. So not everyone's rooting for you once you're kind of in the mountaintop and you're not (laughs) going to win the spirit of the jam award at that point. (laughs) And everyone else is the underdog that people are really excited for. Like I remember, I hope she doesn't mind me telling this story, but it was kind of a like poignant moment of this kind of feeling is when I first met Kubana, she came up to me and she said, you're the boss and I'm here to kill the boss. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like nice to meet you. And it was just kind of weird that, you know, like people have these ideas and preconceived notions of you and they already have a built-in relationship with you just because they're trying to beat you and it kind of throws everything off in a weird way. And so I didn't and really don't love that. I see. I think that's common in other sports or just like activities too. Like in chess, they always say chess is the most fun when you're a thousand ELO. So like Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player is like 2,800. So a thousand is pretty beginner. 
Yeah. And like, that's when chess is the most fun. So that matches your, your story about when you were new and getting eighth and fifth was the best time. I was thinking we've talked about this in other contexts, but there's a certain point where people's imagination of you will far exceed what you really are. So like, I know Dan and I have talked about this a lot. Like you go somewhere and everyone thinks you're going to be incredible and there's not really a way to meet that expectation. And some of it goes down to the thing we've talked about in terms of jamming of like, if I'm doing or going for crazy stuff all the time, it's probably not gonna be that pleasant to jam with me. But at the very least you'll think, <laughs> wow, okay, that person can do really incredible stuff. But when I'm sitting there just doing my brushing, kicking, rolling, catching, kind of like, what's this about? It's so like one other random story, which I actually appreciate this because it did kind of change the way I competed is Ollie came up to me and I guess like we had met before, but I, we hadn't really jammed much. And I don't know if I'd competed at the same tournament as him. And he said something like, you know, you just go for safe stuff when you compete. And I'd like to see you go for the crazy stuff that you can do. And I kind of that thought of like, yeah, you know, I don't really go for the crazy stuff because I don't need to go for it. And it's especially back in the old system, because it's too bad that <laughs> you were highly disincentivized from doing <laughs> the crazy stuff. And then also I think, like honestly a lot of that crazy stuff wasn't really competition ready so or at least like i've always been of the view that i want to go for crazy stuff but it's not worth it if the expected value of the routine plummets so it's like i can go for five crazy moves but if there's a 30 percent chance i catch each of them it becomes highly likely that what i show is terrible it's just going to be a bunch of bad drops this is too complicated. I don't want to go too much into it, but I just mean like <laughs> there's this weird dilemma of performance versus judging system or something where it's like if I was trying to perform well and put on a pleasing show, it was better to go safer because it was more likely that I would go dropless. And that's what is a pleasing presentation, even though it's not as exciting mm -hmm. as a freestyle. But, you know, the last few years I've, tried to go for crazier stuff just because winning is not really my priority and it's more fun to do that. And then it kind of turned out that more often than I did hit the crazy stuff, some of that's the adrenaline you have when you compete. And then I think one like little freestyle wisdom nugget here is a lot of times when you bail, you're like more likely to drop it because that's not what you're used <laughs> to doing. So when you do the things you're used to doing, sometimes it turns out better that way. So I feel like every time a, I drop yeah. it, like every time I drop it, it's like- a whole episode yeah. on just that. Like, what do you think about and how do you make decisions mid-routine? Yeah. But anyways, I appreciate Ollie because he got me fired up. And it was also cool that like players like Edo started going out and hitting triples. I was like, okay, like, I guess it's time to start hitting triples in my routine, which is funny because I went for a lot of triples in 2012 and then I didn't do triples for, you know, eight years. And then I started doing triples again. So it's kind of funny- to go full circle like that. Like in the 2012 range, it made sense for me to go for crazy triples. <laughs> yeah. And then it made no sense for eight years. And then it made sense to go back to it. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. I think it's interesting that when you're talking about the lows, you like talked about a whole time period or like a year, years. But I think most people, when they would think back, like, would you expect them to think about a specific incident? Like, in 2016, when you went for the double spinning barrel guidance in the gym and dropped it and it cost you the world championship, like I would assume that some people 
would think that would be the low point. You know, and, it's like I worried you were going to criticize me for not picking like a specific event, but I don't really have any on either side. Like I don't feel like I have like a high that I can point to or a low that I can point to. And I think a lot of it becomes kind of funny or like part of the myth. So for instance, like I like the story that I dropped the double standing barrel guidance <laughs> in 2016. Like I always think it, it's like inures to my it builds character. Yeah, yeah. Like it's like, it's like a cool story. People like to tell that, you know, in their minds I was winning and then I gambled to try to do something really risky and I dropped it and then I lost and it doesn't really bother me that I lost, especially then. Cause it wasn't really my expectation to win or like, for instance, Pavel asking, this is Pavel's fault. Pavel, <laughs> I'm throwing this, I'm throwing you under the bus, bud. but like, that time Pavel asked me to throw him UD in the EFO cost me like three years of a number one ranking. But I think it's kind of funny. And I'm, I don't know, like I, I'm being honest here because I, it surprises me that I'm not bothered by these things, but like I'm not. And I'm so glad that I'm not. But there's a flip side too, which is I'm not, you know, I don't have the other positive thing either. I don't have like, I don't go to bed every night being like, oh man, 2012, what a dream. And it was a dream. It was amazing. But like, I don't think about it a lot. It's just like part of the story. I don't know. I see. That part surprises me because I can understand looking past the lows. as like, it's a growth mindset thing. You're like, at the time I made the best, the best decision with the information I had. And that's all you can really do hope for. So like, it makes sense that you can look past your low points using that mentality. But it's interesting because like, I have like a singular high point. 2017? But, yeah. I think I've yeah. told you the story. Well, we'll save that for a different time. Well, I I notice that other people have high points and I find it interesting and I'm kind of jealous of it because it sounds really nice. But And I think it comes from just speculating and psychoanalyzing myself. It comes from something that's both a big strength and a big weakness I have, which is basically like never feeling like it's enough. So I think lows fuel me and highs fuel me. So even when I win worlds and nearly sweep it, I'm thinking, well, I could have done a lot better in that routine. And I, or, you know, even my 2019 dropless routine with graph, I'm like, you know, I wish I had gone for a harder double there, or I wish my form had been nicer on this thing. And so like, there's always some theoretical version of myself that I'm imagining and trying to get to that fuels me. And, but it has this, effect of kind of wiping away the highs and lows. It's all funneled into trying to get better somehow. But again, like some of that's a weakness. It is kind of like, I don't know if it's an insecurity or just like some pathological obsession or whatever it is, but <laughs> like it is what it is, you know? Yep. So we've talked in the past about like, if you would go back in time and relive your life again, would you do it? And you answered, no, you would not because you could not achieve the same things. Like what, what do you think you performed? Like you could not do again. Like if you had to go back and do it, relive your life. So certainly if it was, I couldn't take my skills with me, I think I wouldn't even get close. So for instance, I think like Daniel Paul and I winning an open co-op title after Dan and I had been playing for three years was a one in a thousand occurrence. It just seemed so improbable. And it's 
like to me that I should feel better about that in this one sense, which is that Dan and I talked about that. We were like, we are going to win a world title in three years. And it was a completely ludicrous proposition. And I just knew it in my head, even like the day before the finals, I just felt like that could happen. (laughs) And it's insane that it did because it makes absolutely no sense. We were not good enough skill wise. And a lot of it is about Paul who really groomed us and taught us and put with us, obviously, but put together an incredible routine. And that was like a Cinderella run. But even that like fueled me and, I'll, I'll pause here because I kind of offended Paul on our last podcast and I totally understand. I said something like, you know, when we won 2012, I like, again, it was fuel. I was kind of like, oh, people think this is a fluke and we won in bad conditions and the other teams didn't play well. Like, I'm going to show them that I deserve this world title. And I tried to kind of explain to him this broken part of my brain, which is that I separate that feeling from the routine. I think the routine was magical. I think the experience of playing with him and Daniel was incredible and I'll never forget it. And it was truly like, I don't think people understand looking back because they'll project who Daniel I am now to that time. But that was insane that that worked out. And so I feel all those positive emotions, but at the same time, like 24 hours later, I was like, next year, I'm really going to show them. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't know. It's just, it's just how my brain works. So, okay, but I forgot your question. So your question is really like, why wouldn't I go back? So like things like that, I don't think I could replicate if I had to relearn because a thousand things had to go right. And it wasn't just about me and Daniel being, you know, learning quickly. It was about conditions and other teams playing poorly and Paul Kenny agreeing to play with us. And then I mentioned this before, but like if you look at, you know, the Mats and the Fabios of the world who can be the best players for five or 10 years and not win that much, like not as much as you would think they would win given their skill level. Mm -hmm. So it's like actually really hard to win even if you are a top player because there's so much luck. And especially under the old system. Because under the old system, you just have two extra drops than you normally have and you're done. Like that's it. Which I also think like new players won't appreciate. Like you could beat anybody. And this actually like maybe one thing that's kind of interesting about my career to kind of explain some of the success is that in the beginning, it was a huge advantage that it was the old system because as a worse player, I could win a lot more because all that had to happen was a few skilled teams had a couple drops and then I could win. But under the new system, it's really hard for lower skilled players to beat higher skilled players. So do you think it makes sense that the old system favored me as not one of the top players at the beginning and then there was a switch like the switch for the into the new judging system happened at a pretty good time for me because it was when I was becoming one of the better players. Yeah, I think it definitely favors. It, you didn't need as much uh, like, okay, you didn't need as much diff to win in the old system because it was all execution based. Yeah. So it was like the difference, like when we say like how skilled a player is, it's usually how much diff they can generate. Yeah. But that was very, it didn't matter as much as just catching whatever laser consistently for four minutes and that would would win the tournament. So uh, it's a huge advantage for us newer players. Yeah, well, I know you have other questions, but let me pause there to say like another reason I'm kind of interested in moving on from competing. There's only one value that competing emphasizes that I care about, which is catching. But kind of 
a lot of the rest of computing aren't things that I care a lot about. And so I'm not that interested in doing them. So I don't like that certain kinds of moves wake may make way more sense in competition than other kinds of moves because of the risk reward analysis. I don't like how one of the most important skills to me as a freestyler is your spontaneity and ability to improvise and jam and respond to unexpected things. And competition rewards that a little bit, like when things go wrong, but it doesn't reward it very much, which I don't like. And I do like the artistry part of routines a lot, but there's a high, high cost to that because the artistry comes with the hours and hours of choreography and practice, which I find a lot less fun in year 12 than I did at the beginning and certainly a lot (laughs) less fun than jamming with my friends. Yeah. Okay, so we can transition that into what do you think would keep you around competing? Like, let's say there was a new jam format or we were going to the Olympics. Would that keep you around fired up? Boy, I mean, if we were going to the Olympics, I guess I would have to figure out something. (laughs) I think for better or worse, that's probably never going to happen. I think the thing that would get me excited about competing potentially is the new freestylers, obviously. So like, especially the ones that I've groomed. So, you know, I have mixed feelings about, you know, there's great new players coming out of Durham and I do kind of want to compete with them. And look, if there's something that gets me out of retirement, that'll be it. Although it'll be a different kind of competition for me. You know, it won't be like I'm trying to win. I'm just trying to shepherd people into the competition scene. And, you know, one like selfish benefit of a competition break is it kind of lets me reset expectations to be like, okay, like, look, you all can keep competing. I'm trying to, I can signal that this is not what my interest is anymore. And if I came back with, you know, Will and Ray, it would be clear that I have a different goal now than I did 10 years ago. But boy, I would still have to start practicing and like choreographing (laughs) routines and stuff. And there's just a lot of pressure that comes from competing in a way that you don't experience unless you're a top player. So like if I was playing with Ray, for instance, who's only been playing, you know, five or six months, you could say, well, like that would be really casual because no one expects you and Ray to win. And it's really just about him. So go have fun out there. And I don't know what Ray's views on this would be, but it's just a hypothetical, but like the way I think about it and what makes me feel pressure is for someone like Ray, it would be a really big deal to have the chance to play with the top player at such an early part of his career. And so there'd be a lot of pressure to be like, how do I give him the most from this experience? Like that's mm-hmm. the kind of pressure you feel. And, you know, if I don't think everyone experiences that. Like, I don't think you can really understand that unless you're at a certain level of freestyle and you're playing with certain kinds of people. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And, but there's also Let, one other practical thing about that too, which is I don't want to pick favorites. <laughs> like I don't really, <laughs> it, it feels weird to be like, I'm going to play with you and not you. Um, I'll probably get over that at some point or it'll become obvious who I should play with. And I will say that it seems increasingly likely that me, you and Will are going to compete in, in co-op this year at Worlds. Details pending, but like maybe it'll be my, my last go. And that's a little bit easy because he's probably the only one who's going to be able to go to Worlds. And he was a solo generation for the most part. So it's not like he has clear peers who I'm picking him over. But 
We'll see. Yep, that's exciting. Okay, uh, let's say your fantasy happens. You go to the park, and there's people playing freestyle that have no idea what who you are, but they're playing freestyle, and there just happens to be a whole other freestyle scene that's just completely separate. Would you compete in that scene? Interesting. So you have I mean, no I, reputation there. They don't know who you are. Well, there's a couple of nuances to it. One, I'd be thrilled. I'd want to jam, jam with them. But two, I would do it for the... I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm throwing out a modern term. So I'm probably going to get this wrong. But I would do it for the meme. I don't know if I <laughs> used that right. But like, <laughs> it would just be like a funny Uncle Drew situation of like going out there. I could pretend I was really bad at first and then just shred in the finals or something like some kind of funny story making would interest me but i don't know why that would compel me to compete because like anticipating other questions like why don't i want to compete in hat tournaments i don't know i think for me it's like i'm an all or nothing person kind of in all aspects of my life like moderation is not one of my strengths and so it's hard for me to imagine competing here and there but not all the time so it's kind of like either or for me i don't know why i don't know if that's right or that's wrong Maybe there'll be exceptions to this general rule where like some crazy format would be so interesting that I would want to try it. But I don't know, like seeing a new jam scene that would get me excited about a lot of things, but not necessarily competing. <laughs> okay. 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 Changing gears. Who were the biggest influencers on your, on your freestyle? Well, when I started, there weren't influencers ryan but my biggest influences were <laughs> like i'm gonna start with the one that i've said before i don't know if i said it on this podcast and it's kind of like the least expected but daniel and i know that's like weird to say because we started basically at the same time and so we were peers and in that sense he wasn't necessarily like a mentor or you know someone like i looked up to in that sense but he by far and away had the biggest influence on my game so one, like I think he was generally a lot better than me for a lot of the time we were playing together and he, like a rising tide lifts all boats that like really pushed me to be better. You know, we've talked before about how important it is to have someone that you can learn with. So not only did I have someone that I could learn with, I had someone who I could learn with who turned out to be like a top 10 player in the world. So that was hugely impactful. I also think we had really good synergy. Like he was really good at a lot of things that I wasn't as good at. And so I was kind of getting a dose of all my weaknesses so that I could improve them. So like he was a way better like percussive player, like really good at like kicking and brushing. And I think that really pushed me to be a better kicker and brusher. He also had just really great form kind of right out at the bat. And that really inspired me to improve my form. And then we, just like you and me now, like we theorized a lot. Like we were in the dorm room talking about freestyle constantly and watching videos together and just learning at the same time. So I can never say enough that I owe pretty much everything that's happened to me in freestyle to Daniel, like one way or another. So he's a huge influence. But other than that, you know, I've talked ad nauseum about Matt Goff here, so I won't talk too much more about that. I just... From him, more than anything else, I took his kind of the everything but move part that I think is so important. Like just his reaction time, his spontaneity, his ability to catch anything, anywhere, anytime, any place. I really admired that and just generally loved his attitude about freestyle. I learned a ton from Dougie Fresh. 
like one theme in this, and it's a little unfair because I just said Daniel and Matt, but your biggest influences don't need to be the best players in the world. So I don't think Dougie is one of the best players in the world, but I think he's one of the smartest players in the world. And he taught me my decision-making and like a kind of attitude in the jam of keeping it fun and smiling and joking and heckling. Although I think sometimes I need to be careful because people from other cultures are like, why is this guy like yelling at me? It's, it's just because <laughs> in New York we would heckle each other. And also with him like spacing, like he always knows where to be. He's always moving a certain way, especially before he had his ankle surgery. And so I learned a ton from him. I learned a ton from Joey, not in the ways you'd think, like we didn't jam that much, but he always was really smart and would always have like some advice that really works. I mentioned he told me to take fewer steps. That made a big difference in my game. He kind of taught me by example, the, a lot of times it's better to drop it than build a bad habit. <laughs> great, great leading by example there. And I don't know, so many more. You taught me a lot about routines, a lot about form. You also really helped me on the things that I was the worst at, like my guidus, which I think I hit my top rated guidances from you at Frisbeer this year, which is super cool. Um, they look good. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised you even tried it in the routine. <laughs> I mean, it's like Frisbeer, so it doesn't matter much, but I was like, wow, well, James is trying to show off. I know that's what's funny, right? It's like, it's not the triple spinning barrel guidance I was worried about. It was the guidance <laughs> that I was worried about. And I think I hit all my guidances, some of them with better or worse form, but I was pretty happy about that. And oh, there's so many more influences. So I, and I don't want to like drag on about it. But one more that I really want to mention is Tom Leitner. And I think actually, like Ilka said something about our podcast when we were talking. She's like, you don't talk about Tom Leitner enough. And I was like, that is so true. So Tom Leitner, took me in in 2012, invited me to Costa Brava with him, invited me to Rome with him, jammed with me constantly. He taught me how to make videos. He taught me how to film videos. He, after every competition that year, he filmed the routine without telling me. He would just film the routine, bring it to my hotel room that night, put it on my computer, and we'd watch the routine together. And he'd tell me what I did well and what I did wrong. I mean, that's incredible. I couldn't believe that he was making that effort for me when again, like it wasn't obvious that I was a good player, but he just wanted to do that. <laughs> and man, it had a big influence. Like it was kind of the first time I felt like this sounds so weird to say, but in the spirit of honesty, like it's the first time I felt like a star and like I wasn't <laughs> a star in like skill level yet, but I felt like a star in the sense that Tom Leitner was like, this is the person I'm inviting to go on my Frisbee tour. Or like he announces to the Rome freestyle scene, like we have an American top player coming. Like it was the kind of the first time I was hearing things like top player and stuff like that. And it was a, it was a big deal to me. Like, obviously you look up to these people. And one thing that's so great about freestyle is that in our sport, you get to interact with the people who are the stars of the generation before you. They're not like some distant off people. They're right there in your life talking with you. I'm sure I miss someone. Paul Kenny, obviously, I've talked about that a lot. I won't <laughs> I won't go anymore on it. And then later in my career, it changed a lot. Like Dave Murphy's been a bigger influence lately. Ted Oberhaus was a huge influence. I don't know. I don't want to turn into a big just Oscar speech, but 
it takes a village. I think no one probably in the sport besides Daniel, but I don't think, I think I had even more luck than Daniel. Like no one got exposed to more top players than I did. Just living in New York, having all those players there, having someone like Ted who was flying in the best players from around the world to play with us in New York, getting exposed to them like that. And then I lived in Europe for a while and got to play with the best players there. So I just always had access to top players who were teaching me how to play. And I was probably just a snotty little kid who was like, I'm going to play with the best players. I don't care that I'm terrible. It's a bad attribute. Don't recommend it. But I certainly did it. <laughs> I think it probably helped me. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can perform, it's okay. <laughs> I don't know if I always did, but, you know, I tried. And I'm grateful that everyone at least pretended to be nice enough to jam with me. Yeah. I mean, you were, this goes back to our growth mindset thing, but like, I don't think you had an ego back in the day. Like, no, you weren't like, I'm going to be the best player back then, right? You were just like, teach me everything you know. So when a, well, like a top player would come to you, you would be like, please teach me. Well, like, just to be honest, like I wanted to be the best player in the world. Like that was a goal I had, but I, but it was like a growth mindset goal. It wasn't a, like, I don't think it came from a place of arrogance. I think it came from a place of like, I want to do this thing. I have the resources to do it here in New York. And I love doing this and it's fun. And like we talked about in the last podcast, goals were important to me. And so having that goal meant a lot. But this is where, you know, I kind of don't like how people pair things that don't need to be paired. So like wanting to be the best player in the world doesn't mean you have to have like a huge ego. And I think if you have a huge ego, that can really hurt you because like you just said, you have to be willing to say, how do I do this? Like, I'm not very good at this. And that pays off in so many ways. And like a random story that is, I don't remember what year it was, but like one year I wrote Randy Sylvie an email and I was like, hey, like you do this cool behind the head pull. I would love to know how to do that. What are your tips? And he sent me an email back and said like, I'll show you when we play at the next major tournament together. And so it's like having that, you know, lack of ego to reach out to someone and say, how do you do that? Not only did I get to learn how to do it, it also is what let me play with the top player win tournaments and the snowball effect just keeps going and you just keep going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. <laughs> yep. You think we've sold the growth mindset enough yet on the podcast? Well, you know, one thing we didn't talk about at Frisbeer, which maybe we should pause to mention, is it's the first time we were interacting with people since we started the podcast. And I'd say, not surprisingly, we mostly got good feedback because who would come up to us and be like, hey, in person, I wanted to tell you that I hate the podcast. I'm sure there's people out there that do. But um, most of it was positive. And the, by far for me, and tell me if you had a different experience, the favorite episode was the growth mindset episode. Yeah, like, that's what I, I experienced that as well. I feel like we have to do another growth mindset episode. And then one other funny story about that is there was a woman with Giannis from Munich. I think her name was Marin. I hope I got her name right. And she heard that we had a growth mindset episode. And she said, where do I download this podcast? And she's not even a freestyler. She just wanted to listen to it because <laughs> she thought any podcast about the growth mindset she was interested in. So, um, yeah, but, you know, the other thing is like back then I didn't really know about the growth mindset. But I think coincidentally, which I think I said in that podcast, there were a lot of things about freestyle that I approached in a growth mindset way, which was not true about other aspects of my life. Like I don't think I had a growth mindset when I was a musician. 
and I think actually like the failure of being a musician, like the failure that came from having a fixed mindset, like I corrected that when I became a freestyler and it was a very conscious decision that I didn't want what happened to me as a musician to happen to me as a freestyler. So when I was a musician, I also wanted to be the best musician I could possibly be. But like that became a really heavy weight and like a poisonous thing. And I tried to have that same goal in freestyle, but not let it become poisonous. And I kind of succeeded in that. And I think that's what's enabled me to keep going so long. And it actually, one other point I wanted to make that you just reminded me of, and it kind of fits into like why I want to stop competing and also how like I don't really like it when people think my goal is to win. When I was a musician, I wanted to be the best drummer in the world. There aren't any competitions for drummers, really. <laughs> like I, my goal is always to be the best, regardless of whether there's competition or not. And I don't view competition. And this isn't, I'm not saying I'm right about this, but this is just my personal view. I don't view competition as the end all be all of determining who the best players are, especially in a sport like ours. I think it's nice for your own sake to like, you know, win a few things so that you can feel like, oh, like I can do this and I can like achieve this goal in this kind of like quote unquote objective way. But you could never compete and become the best freestyle in the world. I have no doubt about that. And sure, there would be people who would hold it against you and say, well, they never won a world title. But I would just say like, yeah, but did you see their, you know, grown man cry ud invert take like, <laughs> i think we both I, thought of the same thing just now <laughs> yeah. it's like i don't really need to see you win a world title if you can do that so you know it is what it is like i guess long story short you can want to be the best and you can love freestyle without wanting to compete and you don't need to compete but please do compete by the way like i want people to compete and i hope that the tournament numbers will recover post pandemic so i i don't want to seem like i'm down on competition as an idea but you know i've competed in probably like 150 tournaments i don't even know so many tournaments and well now in two months oh that's that's true but i don't know if we'll ever have all the data like i like daniel had a list of all the tournaments he won that he showed me it was a big number i won't reveal it for privacy or something but like i saw his list and i was like wow i can't believe how many tournaments we've competed in and I tried to make my own list and I couldn't even remember a lot of the tournaments, like especially back in the day where there were these one-off tournaments in random places that you would never think of ever again. Okay. Okay. Moving on to, okay, this is one for newer players. I think you mentioned like luck is a big factor for success, but what do you think was outside of luck, the biggest factor for your success? Well, you know, the, trope is luck favors the prepared so i think there's a lot of times i won where it felt lucky but you have to put yourself in a position to be lucky and you know there's a flaw in every judging system where subjectivity plays a big role which is your reputation matters a lot and on the one hand that's pretty annoying which we've talked about on the judging system podcast but on the other hand that's your tool like just keep going out and keep performing at a high level and eventually the luck will turn your way. And that's kind of the thing I always tell people after they have a particularly difficult loss, which is don't be discouraged by it because it'll come back around. If you keep performing at a high level, the luck will catch up to you. Um, and then I don't know, like all the other advice I'd have is all the things I would say that make you a better player. 
I do think, you know, one part of it, and I'm almost loath to say it because I'm sure there are people out there that don't necessarily like me, but, you know, just being a good person also helps generally in our sport. <laughs> like we are judged by our peers. And if you're not liked generally, it's probably going to be hard for you to succeed, even if you are a great player. So just like, sounds so cheesy, but do the right thing as much as you can. And don't overthink it. Don't try to get too sneaky. Don't try to like, you know, I'm trying to decide whether I really want to say this, but don't get in fights about results or like the judging system or things like that. Because if you make everybody mad, it doesn't really inure to your benefit. Like you have to just brush it off and move on and keep playing. And the like, cause a lot of what luck is in freestyle is the judges, it was close and the judges came out on your side. So like, what are all the things you can do to make the judges come out on your side? It's all the obvious things <laughs> like play a little bit better do a little bit harder stuff, be nice, have like a good routine, like give the judges every reason to give it to you in the end, you know? Yep. All right. That was the end of my questions. <laughs> okay. I'm really, for like how do you think hour? we did? I'm nervous that it's just going to be a big self-congratulatory thing. Was it okay? I feel no, like it was honest. it was not like that. No. Okay. It's going to be really funny if I pull a Tom Brady and, Next year, I'm like, I'm out of retirement. I'm back, baby. But <laughs> okay. I honestly, I, I highly doubt it. Like one thing that we didn't talk about that I think is worth mentioning is I got a lot of value in New York from the fact that no one was competing besides me and Daniel. And so like that changes the relationship I had with the other players who were teaching me. And it made it a lot more, I don't know, wholesome, productive, whatever. And so I think it'll be nice to be helping and interacting with newer players when I'm not their competitor, because I think that puts a certain, I don't know, wall between me and everybody else when at the end of the day we're at a tournament and they're trying to beat me and in theory I'm trying to beat them. So it'll be nice to feel like, like for instance, sometimes I like to give people advice. I try not to make it unsolicited and annoying. Like if I see... (laughs) And maybe I do. I'm sorry. But I like I try to be really careful about giving advice because sometimes it can be really frustrating when someone gives you unsolicited advice, obviously. But like sometimes I try to give people advice during a tournament where I think like, hey, like you're so close to making this work for you. Like if you just change this, it's really going to be better. And I'm always worried that people have skepticism about my motives, especially with people's like misconceptions about what I'm trying to do when I compete. And so it'll be nice to be like, I'm out of this. And this is what I think is right. I also think even things like judging will be a lot nicer to be like, I'm not competing in this. And this is what I think is the right result. I'm not trying to play any funny games here. Like, here's what's happening. Um, So I think that'll be cool. And I think we'll be able to do more stuff. Like, I think sometimes we're limited because it's a bad look for us to be competitors who are also doing whatever we're doing behind the scenes, you know, and it'll be nice to say like, look, like we're not competing. We're just trying to help. And I think that message will come across clearer when we're not competing. I think you're still competing, but I think I'm actually wish I had your strength because you're competing in like a genius way, which is you're, you're definitely like shepherding in new players and the new generation. And I think that, gives you a lot more credibility 
with all the other stuff that you do, but I'm just not built for it in the same way. Yeah. I know. I forgot to ask all the things you're looking forward to in retirement. I think it's jamming, honestly. Like I've always prided myself on jamming more than anybody else at every tournament. And I think, I wish there was advanced stats on that. I have to believe that there's almost no tournament I've ever attended where somebody jammed more than I did. Do you think I'm right or wrong about that? I think I jammed more than you did. In, at Frisbeer? In my prime. Not a, no, no in my prime. This no, is like, like But pre, at a tournament? At a tournament, yeah. Like wow. from 2012 to, from like 2010 to 2014. Oh, 2013, Lazzaroni, Manuel Cesare had to wheel me off the field. Like I couldn't even, I barely competed in the finals. I was so tired. We might have to do like The thing a is, just because I didn't look tired doesn't mean I didn't play more than you or didn't jam more than you. All right. Well, I'm glad you're, okay. you're tearing me down here. But so like, it's not that going to tournaments prevented me from jamming. Like I was never, no disrespect, but I was never the kind of freestyler who was so focused on the competition. I wasn't jamming. But at the same time, if I'm looking at the schedule of things that I could go to, I'd much rather skip worlds and go to a beach weekend in Germany or something. Um, And also like it changes all my scheduling and stuff. You know, it's like I can skip this part of the two week trip to Europe to go to the tour through Israel to go jam on the beach at the Dead Sea or whatever, like I think I'm really excited to do stuff like that. I think I'm excited to have even more leeway to work on things that I'll never use in competition. Like I already kind of said, that's been a big thing for me. Like why am I working on double spinning catches the other way? Not for competition, but like I can just be, I can just work on the cross roll set for the next 10 years and that's all I need to do. And (laughs) that's fine. And I don't know. I don't know, really. Like, maybe it's trying to get back to how I felt in the beginning days when it really was just the joy of jamming unencumbered by expectations. I don't know. We'll see. I'm nervous I'll jam less, but it's because I'm getting older and I have more responsibilities now. But I hope that I can stay fired up without the rhythm of competition because that is a big benefit of it. Like, even this Frisbee or seeing the crazy stuff Edo, Kubana, and Chesco are doing. I'm like, oh, I got to get home and practice that crazy thing I saw. And I might lose a little bit of that if I'm not traveling as much. But hopefully I can keep it up. Like one thing we didn't say, the travel. It's exhausting <laughs> me. And maybe that's age, but the travel is just killing me. Yeah. I mean, even I've been having bad travel experiences. And so I'm like, was it always this hard? We know like one thing that happened on the way to Frisbeer and it's a coincidence, I've never missed a tournament because of a travel issue. And when I was going to the Berlin Hat before World, before Frisbeer, I wasn't planning on competing in the Berlin Hat, which is the first time I was planning on being there and not competing. And I missed it because of a flight delay. And on the one hand, I wanted to be like really mad about it. Like, I can't believe I missed this tournament because my flight was delayed for a silly reason. But I was like, you know, I wasn't even going to compete in it. But, you know, that part will be... Kind of nice. There's also like this really grown up problem, which is when you work, it's very hard to say, especially in my job, to be like, hey, in one year, August 21st through 27th, I'm going to be in Colombia. 
like not going to be able to work then. And they're like, oh, uh, okay. Like hopefully you don't have a trial then or something. It's like, <laughs> like every year I've made it to Worlds, it's felt like it was by the skin of my teeth. Like it's always moving heaven and earth to make it happen. I'm pretty sure I won't say which world it was. There's one Worlds I literally single-handedly moved so that I could go to it, which if that isn't a next level play, um, I don't know what is. So the freedom to be like, you know what, if something comes up at work and I can't go to world, that's fine. I'll go to sea and summit and Trieste instead. You know, I can just swap something else out and it's not a problem. Yeah. Now you're just going to be coach James. I have coaching. I'm excited about, I yeah. like there's teams at Frisbee where I was just like, if I could just coach this team, I know they would win. And that's, that's what I want to, that's also my dream. <laughs> Like even a little thing, like I've, I haven't competed in an individual event in many, many years. And for the last few years, but not this year, because we were judging, Daniel would always ask me to coach him for turbo shred, which is a little bit silly because Daniel doesn't need me to coach him, but it was like super fun to like, be like, okay, like how did the first move go? Let's talk about like, maybe you should go for this and you can provide a lot of value no matter what your skill level in terms of being like you don't realize it, but people think when you do this, it's so cool. So like do that and like, just like little things like that. And like having another brain to assess how are you doing relative to everybody else? And do you need to bring it up or bring it down or what do you got to do? And that was always just really fun and felt collaborative. And there was no ugly competition part of it, you know, when you're on the coach side. So it was super fun and rewarding and hope to do more of that. Yeah. I know you have a whole community now. I guess we're starting with Will, right? Yeah, Will's Will's fired up. Will said, "I told you this when I was leaving the jam the other day." Will said, "I need to be playing two hours a day, seven days a week." I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> I I remember when I was like that." But it's yeah, he he's super fired up, and yeah, I can't wait to yeah. see see what they do. I've been telling him the rest, so he's healthy when. I'm there to visit. Oh, so you're the reason why it keeps resting. I haven't said it because it's really bad advice and the lawyer and me can't bear to do it. But I've been so tempted to be like, you need to stop resting. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, ne- I never rested. Like, I was, <laughs> look, I do not recommend this. I'm not a doctor. Do not take this advice at all. But I remember when I, I was pretty early on, I don't think I've told this during the podcast. I told Dan Yarnell, like, hey, man, like my arm really hurts from throwing like what do you think I should do like do you think I need to take a break and Dan was like when I started my arm hurt but I just kept throwing and one day it went away and that's what I did (laughs) and he was right one day it went away although these days it's kind of come back a little bit but yeah I don't know (laughs) I was usually of the theory that I would just find a way to keep playing but not everyone has that kind of luck there's some luck for you by the way never really had a serious injury other than my collarbone injury knock on wood but like both you and me have been really durable daniel's been pretty durable but he's had a few more issues but none of us have had like real major injuries yeah it's never affected my tournament play i guess you're even even my collarbone i broke my collarbone a couple months before worlds and i thought there was no way i was going to be able to play but it was probably one of my best worlds did you say i was gonna you thought i was gonna miss a tournament because of an injury no whiffed if you missed you had to skip because oh, yeah. you're in the Was I even gonna play that tournament? I don't remember how I was supposed to play. I don't know. I got to win that tournament because you were injured. 
I, I jammed that whole tournament though with my swing yeah, on and with the wizarding. So even with it, with my arm in a sling, I think I jammed more than you at that tournament. Yeah, that that was past my prime though. Got it. Got it. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Nope. I think that was everything. Wait, wait. wait. I have one more topic. I have okay, one more topic. Okay. So I've told some people that I'm retiring from competition, and a lot of the reaction is this like sorrow or sadness or like why are you doing this like there's there's like a lot of they like assume it comes from a place of a lot of negativity but i don't think it comes from a place of negativity and i don't really know how to explain that it's not negative but i don't know do you think that came across that it's not really about like anything bad it's just kind of like i think it's like the good place it's like like oh there's like spoilers here so if you're gonna watch the good place you should have finished it by now (laughs) Is one of my and, favorite television shows, but continue. So, okay, here's a spoiler. So like when Chidi goes through the door, everyone around him is sad, but Chidi is not sad. So I think you're not sad. That's true. So I'm going to actually spoil it then because you didn't really explain that all the way. So okay. in the good place at the end, they're all in heaven, basically. But the problem with heaven is eventually you get bored of it. And so at some point, everyone has to decide to actually end their life. And so each character in the show eventually makes the decision that they've had enough of heaven and they walk through the door and it's very moving and very beautiful in the show. And it's sort of similar. Like I loved competing for a long time, but I'm at least for now ready to walk through that door. Ryan won't do the outro. So I'm going to do it now. Thank you for listening to clacker counter, my career retrospective. You know, you said I didn't have an ego earlier and here. We've done a whole episode about my career, but this was your idea, not mine. Blame Ryan. Send your hate mail to him. But hopefully there are some interesting insights. And sometimes we're at the beginning of a journey. It's good to peek at the end. And so if you're a new freestyler, learn from my mistakes, know what's ahead and, and good luck. Check us out at clockercounter.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. And send us an email, clockercounter at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next week.